Coming up next on this week in computer hardware, Ryzen 9 Spanks Intel Core i9 on at least one benchmark. Samsung's new flagship Exynos 990 CPU. Too many GPUs. There's another NVIDIA Supercard coming. All that and more coming up next on Twitch. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 538, recorded on October 24th, 2019. Ryzen 9 spanks Intel Core i9. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by iFixit. If you're tired of dealing with the ball and chain charger on your laptop, switch the battery yourself. iFixit makes it easy to swap the battery out on your Mac or PC with their all-in-one battery fix kits. Just visit iFixit.com slash Twitch and you'll get $10 off your next $50 fix. Welcome to Twitch this week in Computer Hardware Twitch Weekly Show. The name is bringing you the most delightful, most engaging, most affordable, most expensive, most unhinged, most practical, and generally speaking, the most hardware news we can bring you each and every week. I'm Patrick Norton, joined by Mr. Sebastian Peak of PCPer.com, and we have a lot to talk about. Starting up, 3950X, the leaks, the mayhem, the joy, the rumors, and the tweets that I believe have been pulled down. Are you with me, Sebastian? I am, Patrick. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we, we seems that we kind of split time in recent weeks with rumor, speculation, and actual hardware news. But unfortunately, we don't have hardware in hand for these new processors because we can't go out and buy the 3950X. That's not available until November. And then we're still waiting on availability of the new 10th generation uh Core i9 part, the Extreme Edition part, which would be the 10980XE. But publicly available benchmarks from 3DMark, which have been removed. I followed the links this morning. They no longer work. But Tom's hardware still has screenshots. Uh, this is a Firestrike 1.1 benchmark, and that's a graphics benchmark. But it's separated into a graphics score, a physics score, which is CPU, and then a combined score. So just looking at the CPU scores, uh, there was about a 24% disparity between the core uh, I or the core the 10 the core i9 10980XE and that Ryzen 9 3950X. So the Ryzen scoring over 32,000 with the physics score, and the mm-hmm. Intel part. Scoring only what was it twenty five thousand or twenty eight thousand? It was significantly lower, twenty five thousand eight hundred. So that, and but honest, but Intel is always super better, more faster, and single core GPU gaming, just like we used to use several years ago. And in fact, it's better at like quad core gaming because their individual cores are faster. Therefore, if you're a serious gamer, you only buy Intel. How can this be? <laughs> I'm detecting just a modicum of snark there, Patrick. Just, just to, you bring it out of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and honestly, I I'd have to go through. There is a, I think there's like a white paper for 3D Mark, and I could look into this. But right. I, I I would assume that by now that physics benchmark is multi-thread um, optimized. So you're you're, but and on the other hand, and, and I, I say that, and yet the Intel part, if this is accurate, if that was really that CPU, that's an 18 core CPU compared to a 16 core from AMD. So I think the clocks have it. Like the the benchmark showed, I think in the, mm-hmm. if it's still visible, you can see this. I don't know if it's on those screenshots or not, but the benchmarks showed a low clock speed. The reported clock of the i9 10980XE was only three gigahertz. Now, Turbo was reported at 4.8, but if it was using all cores, all threads, it would have probably clocked down closer to that 3 gigahertz mark, and the Ryzen part was running faster. So Mm -hmm. that would be a huge difference, especially if, like you mentioned, single-core performance. Right. uh, The Ryzen was running at a minimum of 3.5 gigahertz. So there's... That's probably the, the difference here. Whether that's final clocks or not, we don't know, because that's probably some engineering sample of the Intel part that may or may not be final clocks. So we'll we'll have to see. It was just interesting. This has been picked up and reported all over the place. It was first uh, reported on Twitter, uh, basically just with links to 3D Mark. You go to their site and look at these these benchmark result numbers. And then Mm -hmm. screenshots 
worked their way around all the usual channels. We posted news about it. And then, of course, I looked today and all of it's been taken down. Except for, you know, <laughs> anybody who managed to screenshot it. We have one of the two screenshots. I didn't get both of them. And, of course, now they're, they're history. But Tom's Hardware still had them both up. So just interesting. I, I mean, if this is indeed true... And I will say the other thing that kind of comes out of this is, okay, is it absolutely certain that 3D Mark Firestrike or any of the 3D Mark graphics tests for the physics part of the test, are they 100% CPU bound? Is there any variance at all from GPU? And if you had noticed when we were showing those slides, there were very different GPUs involved. The AMD right. system was using a 20, an RTX 2080 Ti and the Intel system was only using a stock RTX 2070. Uh, internally, here at uh, PC Perspective, myself and my managing editor, Jim, we went through and we're benchmarking on an Intel platform and I had the AMD platform. We were comparing notes and it turns out there's almost no difference from GPU to GPU. I went from a 2070 to a 2080 Ti. I did see an increase, which was interesting, with my 3900X, right. but it was within 1% to 3% on any given run. So almost within the margin of error, but it was still consistently a little I'd bit higher. So three percent and under is well within the margin of error. I mean, that's yeah, that's going to be undetectable in in any type of gameplay. You are not going to notice that. Period. Um, yeah, I mean, if, know, if this ends up being accurate, if these are really the the results we can expect, and this is one benchmark. I mean, this is it's silly, right. but it's fun to like look at this stuff early. But if this ends up being the case, then AMD will be able to say, "Aha, we have." The gaming performance, but honestly, this is CPU well, performance. It's the gaming physics performance. You right. know, this C it's it's CPU impacting gaming physics. I mean, when you look at 3D gaming and you think, okay, well, I need to render stuff in 3D, and of course, I need to play the game. Um, how much of that? I mean, to to randomly create a number. You know, if if the graphics is 60, 70 percent of the, the experience, you know, and the game is 60 to 70 percent of the experience, like, you know, in terms of physics, how much is the physics engine actually part of the gaming? I mean, I, what would you label it? Probably you know virtually I mean? none. But we'd have to see. And there are definitely some <laughs> gaming benchmarks that exist. I, there's mostly synthetic benchmarks to draw this out and to look at the right. the comparisons like this, obviously. But anyway. If you are a developer in the gaming world and you're sitting here pounding your face against your keyboard and thinking, those fools, they have no idea what incredible role the physics engine plays in the gaming experience, just favor email twitch at twit.tv because we want to hear from you and we want to share your expertise and insight with the rest of the audience. Um, in other processor-related news, uh, and something that certainly took me by surprise, probably took Sebastian by surprise, will probably take you by surprise, quotes Intel once back in the tablet space with its new Tremont architecture. Remember mobile? Remember Intel really not getting anything in the mobile world except for like one tiny cell phone manufacturer in China? Yeah. So now that tablets are kind of chill kind of a, a stable market, certainly not a growing market. They are apparently looking to uh, return to the somewhat less competitive tablet architecture or tablet uh, processor market. I I am lightly fascinated by this. Um, Ultra-low power 10 nanometer CPUs. They debuted this at the Little Microprocessor Conference in Santa Clara, writes yes. Jim Salter over at ArsTechnica.com. Um Client, Internet of Things, data center products, and I think data center products may be sort of the real target for this, i.e. Uh, going after ARM and ARM's efforts to, and NVIDIA's and a whole bunch of other people's efforts to uh, take over the data center with uh, cool or cooler running uh, multiple blade server type devices. Um, New dual screen Surface Neo is going to have the Tremont processor uh, that is going to be using, uh, quote, both high-powered Ice Lake and low-powered Tremont cores, the Lakefield hybrid processor. Um, these are incredibly low power, incredibly inexpensive Intel CPUs, and uh, you you might know them, as uh, Ars Technica points out, by names like Celeron and Pentium N. 
Yes. I'm giggling because somebody sent me an email uh, a while back and they're like, why do they even make two core processors anymore? This is stupid. And it's like, well, if you are have to replace all of the 486s or Pentiums or insert name of other 5 to 10 year old or 20 year old processor in an industrial facility. You don't need quad core or, or hexacore or octacore CPUs, you know, to run the, uh, you know, the software that's running a milling machine. Or for example, I needed a dedicated computer to run, um, uh, the software for a teleprompter and, you know, a two core system, a one core system would be fine. A two core system is fine for running that. So there's, there's definitely a demand for this. And of course, also building things to a price point, uh, is another place where you find, you know, lots and lots of opportunities for these processors to be legitimate and useful for a lot of people. Um, you know, the, uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, also, they have like Intel Atom Z3745 versus Qualcomm Snapdragon 410 and uh, these comparisons about these. And it's, uh, you know, has integrated LTE, 110 megahertz, faster GPU clock speed, has dynamic frequency scaling, has trust zone. Uh, quote, the comparisons at versus.com should not be confused with real benchmarks. They're synthetic comparisons of specs. <laughs> That said, uh, Mr. Salter says that uh, this one about the Snapdragon tablet CPUs in 2014 was on the money. Um, <clears throat> it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, Atom processors did not do well, period. Uh, no. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be cruel, but I don't think uh, anyone particularly enjoyed the experience of an Atom processor. Uh, even me with my, my – just, just minutes ago, I was defending dual-core processors uh, and their utility in certain applications – uh, certainly pounded my head against a wall with at least one atom processor going, really? This is all you have for the money? This is the best you well, can do? Remember, uh, in, in their initial state, uh, the, the first generation of atom processors were very closely related, not to anything that was currently available at that time, but to the right. original Pentium. They were in-order yeah. processors that were, you know, it, it, it was remarkable that, that they... I guess it was just simply a matter of clock speed that made them as effective as they were. But I'm, I'm just, I have flashbacks to the horrible netbook era and Intel Atom processors running Windows XP with one gigabyte of RAM. <laughs> and this is very different. I was looking through the charts. Right. Uh, Intel, their newsroom has a post up on this and it, the, the charts that have been referenced in all the articles so far. And Intel core class branch prediction has been added to this. Their quad core modules you can have up to 4.5 megabytes of level two cache, depending on the product SKU. Um, Ten execution ports, dual load store pipelines, four wide allocation, six wide out of order. So it's it's out of order instruction decode. It's it's very 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 different from those initial Atom processors, and even some of the stuff that's available right now. Their focus with this product release was single threaded performance. So even though these are quad core modules, there's still 20 percent improvement over Goldmont plus. As a minimum, I think they're they showed a chart where they were they're claiming internally between twenty and as much as eighty percent uh, more single threaded performance than their Goldmont Plus architecture. So it should be a huge improvement. It's a, it's a much wider pipeline, and the core class branch prediction means that these are just going to be significantly faster. I'd I'd love to get a product with one of these and benchmark it against some of the existing atom processors. Which, I mean, whether or not they enter into the tablet market, I thought it was amusing that Ars Technica took that stance, that they're, they're trying mm -hmm. to get back into tablets. Because we all know what happened with Intel, their last push to get into mobile. And if these indeed offer a huge performance boost over their previous architecture and are still consuming very little power, they'd make a great case for it. But honestly, if you're buying a tablet, it probably is running Android and it seems like an ARM solution would be ideal, but you know, we will see what kind of, what kind of proposition this is. I think they tried to compete on price before very significantly. I think they were undercutting anybody else to try to get into tablets and phones before. So we'll see if that's their strategy again, or if this is just, you know, we desperately need a better atom based platform for things like low cost notebooks, because like you mentioned that Celeron and Pentium branding those are Atom CPUs, and there are plenty of dual-core, hyper-threaded, Atom-based notebooks out there 
in that kind of $300 right. and up entry-level notebook range that are absolutely terrible to use. My mother has one of these, <laughs> and it's it's astonishing how awful it is. If it weren't for the fact that she was only getting on there to check her email, I would I would have to get her a better machine. But anyway. You would be morally obligated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This must be changed. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's switch directions a lot. And uh, uh, talk about Samsung, uh, the latest. I, I say this for me because I, I murder it every time I try to. Exynos 990 chipset. I, yeah, um, I say Exynos, but I probably pronounce Exynos, a lot of things Exynos, that works wrong. for me. Exynos works for me. Uh, quote, 20% faster overall and twice as fast on AI-specific tasks. A new 5G modem. All of it on a Intel poking with a stick seven nanometer process. Um, yeah, are we excited? Do we care? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, <laughs> anytime a new Exynos comes out, typically for us in the U.S., uh, we we don't often get the latest and greatest Samsung phone with the Exynos chipset. We generally get a high end. Qualcomm Snapdragon chipset, and then the the international version of a given phone will come out with the latest and greatest Exynos chipset. Exynos has some pretty compelling uh, performance characteristics. I think that Qualcomm typically with their platform offers better graphics performance, but Samsung offers outstanding CPU performance. And I, I I will be very interested in going hands on with this. The the improvements to AI, and that's been, of course, the buzzword for the last couple of years now, that matters a lot when you're dealing with things like intelligent, um, like it, like photo-specific. I don't know how much of that is tied into the actual image signal processor for the camera section of this chipset because these mobile platforms like this, they're going to include ISPs for everything in addition to just your your eight CPU cores and your graphics scores and everything else. So the the AI improvements are actually probably more significant than I might think off the top of my head. You know, there's probably a lot of applications on your Android phone that could benefit from that, depending on how they're going to implement it. But just in general, just looking over the specs here, we don't have final clocks for things like the GPU, CPU. They're saying 20% performance increase, but, you know, what are the clocks? Exynos M5... Right. Uh, 2x Cortex A76 and 4x Cortex A55. So they're kind of following the trend that Apple set forth, where you have fewer high-performance cores and then more of those lower-performance uh, cores to do background tasks, to do the things that don't need to clock up as high, which greatly enhances your battery life. So mm-hmm. this is not just one of those you know big little configurations for big, for small that we've seen in the past. I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the things Andre points out in the article on the Nantech was that there is no modem data listed in the Exynos uh, 990, but they announced a uh, the Exynos modem 5123, which is kind of crazy, right? It's uh, you know an update of the 5100 that they've been using this year, 2G to 5G sub six, as well as millimeter wave. Um, so now uh, the you know the the maximum throughput on it has gone up massively. Um, Downlink, downlink speeds of up to, quote, 3 gigabits per second while offering 422-bit megabytes per second upload. Um, I say 3 gigabits per second, 422 megabits per second upload. <coughs> uh, 5G sub-6, uh, they're saying 5.1 gigabits per second download, 7.35 gigabit per second in millimeter wave networks. Um, they have up to 8x carrier aggregation and a 1024QAM. Uh, and this is a pretty sophisticated, pretty fast modem on this. And uh, apparently, uh, part of the reasoning behind this is that uh, having a discrete 5G modem is partially because the 5G modems are still massive. The dyes are still huge. And, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Compared to LTE, there's just no way to reasonably integrate it at this point. That's the, the trade-off. It's like we've gone back in mm-hmm. time to when baseband was not part of the SOC. It's a separate chip, and it's because it's, it's physically a lot larger I don't know if it's being made right. in a different process than the seven nanometer process, but probably different yields, a different. It's mm-hmm. just it, it makes more sense for them to to have a discrete product at this point, and it's just I don't know why that's necessary because 
you know, 5G is not going to be on every handset, or maybe everything with the 990 is going to. Well, this, I mean, this is, oh, no. this is the, I mean, this is a flagship chipset for them. This is not going to be, you know, this is going to be at the high end phones, a thousand dollar price range, eight hundred thousand dollar price range. By next year, it'll kind of make sense to have 5G on flagships, or maybe more accurately, I think 5G is going to be one of those checkbox features where it's like, if I'm spending a thousand dollars for a phone, I'm going to get 5G. Gosh darn it. Um, we'll see. You know, it's uh, 5G is slowly rolling out <laughs> in, a, in an almost meaningful way. Um, Samsung, by the way, is also patched. We talked about the fingerprint reader flaw last week that on certain uh, uh, screen covers, the pattern on certain screen protectors and certain silicon cases were showing up as legitimate fingerprints. Apparently, and I have not seen this one, somebody used something along the lines of a pomegranate or a mango to open their Samsung or unlock their Samsung uh, uh, Galaxy S10 or Note 10. Uh, because, you know, once YouTube gets going on mocking your product, they really can't let it go until they've done everything. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. Samsung uh, Samsung told Reuters uh, it would send notifications for software updates to Galaxy S10 and Note 10 users who have registered their biometric data, i.e. if you're using it, they're going to tell you it's time to update it. Uh, and uh, the uh, fingerprint reader flaw, we are told, has been patched. Meanwhile, in other exciting news of things that manage to make your buying decision just that much harder. <laughs> NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1660 super, super specs. Um, yeah, Hexus.net, Mark Tyson wrote this up. Uh, quote, a listing at a prominent Chinese online tech retailer appears to confirm the existence of an example upcoming specs of NVIDIA's GeForce GTX 1660 Super Graphics Card, NVIDIA's first non-RTX Super Graphics Card, has been regularly popping up in leaks and rumors. Uh, I think it's legit. Of course it's legit. I don't know. I, Why I feel like I have heard these rumors for a while now. I love this product name, by the way. The Maxon Terminator GeForce 1660 <laughs> Super. And of course, now I'm seeing it says 1660 Super, not TI Super, so... I don't know, it, it makes sense. I, I think we've talked about this recently as well, that at some point, AMD and NVIDIA are both both going to populate pretty much every open price point. They left big right. gaps between their products. Like right now, you could go anywhere and buy a 1660 Ti for 279 mm -hmm. I think is the base price. Maybe it's 269 but I've seen them at 279 And then it drops down to either 219 or 229 for the 1660 There's a big gap in there, around $50, and so split the difference, put in a 1660 Super, it makes sense. So if this indeed is true, I know we'll know soon enough, but if it's true, then it's just one of those expected things. Look back at previous lineups, look at the Pascal stuff, and you'll see right. not as much segmentation. I guess we're having more segmentation this time around because Super didn't exist before. Although it's worth noting that the RTX 2070 Super and 2080 Super did, in fact, replace the non-Super versions at the same price points. And the 2060 Super was a new product that was a little bit more expensive than a non-Super 2060, just to make everything a little bit easier to, to <laughs> understand. Because, of course, they can discontinue all they want, but while stuff is still out in the retail channel... You're going to be scrolling through on Amazon or Newegg or wherever you do your computer component shopping online and see 2080, 2080 Super, 2070, 2070 Super, 2060, 2060 Super, and maybe even more Super cards now to compete with the existing versions. If they don't discontinue them, then there'll be even more cards out there to choose from at every imaginable $10 increment. I mean, this is one of the reasons why PC Per exists. Or other hardware sites where literally, you know, the manufacturers have made it so complicated to figure out the basics of their products or which one you should buy or whether or not that upgrade is actually worth it. You know, um, you know, for example, as much as we love uh, the Ryzen processors, the 3800 is not a meaningful upgrade for the money over the 3700, right? Uh, it just I, – I know why they're doing this. I understand the marketing justification for this. It still drives me nuts that they have to have, you know, a card, Every $12 well, of yeah. the pipeline. And, uh, <laughs> I, I exaggerate. It's, it's the last announcement we had was AMD with the Radeon RX 5500, which was their 1080, they're targeting 1080p performance with it. It's going to compete in price with 
I believe the non-TI-1660 or the, maybe the 1650. Uh, mm-hmm. I I have to see what add-in board partners are actually going to be offering with the card because the, the launch isn't until next month for desktop and it's going to OEMs first. This is something where you're going to look at a pre-configured computer system and it's going to be offering this RTX or the RX 5500 before we can actually buy cards. And AMD told media that they would not have a reference version, so I don't think that AMD is sampling anybody with this. We'll have to wait and talk with companies like Sapphire and XFX that make AMD cards. But if if NVIDIA saw early numbers on that and said, eh, we can offer a different configuration like we did with the 2070 Super, 2080 Super with existing silicon, uh, like the, you know, whichever one of their GPUs, uh, then it makes sense to do because then you can you can hit yet another price point and you can showcase your product versus the competition in a favorable way. And Nvidia has a lot of breathing room, like I said, because there's such big gaps right now between some of their products where they have straight up entry level with the 1650 jumps quite a bit to the 1660 and then is a little bit higher still with the 1660 Ti but at a much higher price point relative to that performance. So there's a lot of room in there and it's annoying oh my goodness i it's funny i don't know if kevin i, I, I emailed a picture our, our our long-suffering producer should hopefully have a picture of an ifix it there it is <laughs> that is an i with a banana no less Wait, is with the banana, banana included the banana is not included in the ProTech Toolkit. Neither is the MiFi 8000 Sprint device to the left of the iFixit Pro Toolkit. Above it, we have a Carbon X1. Above, Directly above the iFixit, we have a Carbon X1. To the right of the iFixit, we have a common banana. To the right of the banana, or the banana is sitting on the uh, cover for the MiFi 8000. And the MiFi 8000 to the left of the ProTech Toolkit is what I had the ProTech Toolkit out because I was having issues uh, getting the router to work. We'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> there is an iFixit ProTech toolkit. Uh, that was in my bag, which was in a Penske 16-foot panel van, which I was taking on my way up to Reno because, of course, we've been finishing off the move out of our house. Uh, there is one in the Airstream. There is one in my you know, tool workbench, which, of course, is now in Reno. But uh, I have these things everywhere. My wife have one. My kids have one because... It is amazing what you can do with these toolkits. And uh, obviously, we're sponsored by iFixit. This episode of, of This Making Computer Hardware is is sponsored by iFixit. Um, is brought to you by iFixit. It, 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 look, if you're tired with dealing with a ball and chain charger on your laptop, switch the battery yourself, right? It's not that hard. iFixit makes it easy to swap the battery out on your Mac, your PC, with their all-in-one battery fix kits. And these are great because they give you everything. If you don't have a, a ProTech toolkit, you can go there. You can buy a fix kit. Go to ifixit.com slash twitch, by the way. You'll get $10 off your next $50 fix. Um, and what happens, you get everything you need. Parts, batteries, tools, everything you need backed by an industry-leading warranty. You get the most helpful repair guides on the internet. They are amazing for free. doesn't matter if you're fixing a screen or a motherboard, if you've bought their tools, if you've bought their kits. They give all the information for free. I fix it once to keep hardware out of landfills. They want you to keep your devices running for as long as you can, for as long as you want to. And iFixit can help with more than just your phone, right? They have step-by-step instructions with amazing photos to see how easy it is to do it yourself. Get the help you need repairing game consoles, PlayStations, Xbox, Nintendos, tablets, Kindles, iPads, Windows tablets, Mac and PC computers, cameras, just about all the major brands, even items for your car and truck, from the battery to your sun visor, how to do brake pads. Everyone should know how to replace their own brake pads. It's not that hard. You may not need to do it, but if you know how it works, then you can keep yourself from getting overcharged, I'll use uh, as a gracious term, from your local dealer or your local brake shop. For example, like a friend of mine who paid $600 for new rotors, calipers, and brake pads when he needed brake pads for his brand new car that was two months old with 8,000 miles on it. If he knew a bit more about the brakes, could have gone to iFixit to learn that, he might not have gotten charged $600 for $40 of brake pads. iFixit has guides to fix appliances and apparel, um, you know, I love iFixit. I love what they're doing. I love the tools. I love how they're trying to keep stuff out of landfills. I love keeping my gear running. I literally just replaced my boy's iPads 
which were literally first-generation iPads. We finally had to, to change them because there were a bunch of applications we needed to run that wouldn't work on that aging operating system on those iPads. But iFixit helped me keep them running. And iFixit can help you fix just about anything. Check out their all-in-one fix kits at iFixit.com slash Twitch, and you'll get $10 off your next $50 fix. That's iFixit.com slash Twitch. Get $10 off your next $50 fix, and we want to thank iFixit for the support of This Week in Computer Hardware. It's good stuff. Go check it out. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> mobile Internet is a pain in the ass. I just want to say that. Um, especially, uh, I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, in three, two. Mobile Internet is a pain in the ass. I just want to say that directly. I also want to give a shout-out to Common.net. If you're in the Bay Area and Common.net is available for you, or if you're in an area that they expand to, Common.net is a startup that I've been using for my Internet for the last couple of years. They do a wireless rooftop-based network. It's kind of like a self-configuring mesh network. Um, I love them. I've been paying, I think, 40 bucks a month for, well, I'm supposed to get 75 megabits up and 75 megabits down. That is parity, um, like full speed up and down. I typically see 100 to 150 megabits up and down. Um, mm. It's freaking amazing um, for 40 bucks a people month. Just, people um, just sharing their internet then with... As it's not the sharing circuit? their internet. They essentially what they do is is they have a they have a massive mesh network. You're, I'm not sharing squat with anybody, okay. but you can see the there's a whole bunch of ubiquity hardware on that pole you see on the top of that house. And what they do is they start with a building that they find they find one of the highest buildings in the neighborhood. Uh, then they put one of several of their antennas on top of that, and then those go out to additional houses, and it basically creates a large wireless mesh style network. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you have a massive amount of bandwidth on there and they've been really good. What's amazing is there was about a year and there were some glitches on, on Friday or Saturday night when everybody in Alameda was trying to, you know, watch Netflix at the same time. Um, but, uh, other than that, it's been pretty amazing in terms of speed, uh, and customer support. I like them a lot. They're a good company. I will miss them leaving Alameda. I miss them even more because I'm dealing with mobile internet. And uh, mobile internet is an exercise in two or three things. One, uh, cellular companies charging you a staggering amount of money for not much data. Um, if I uh, quit adjusting my monitor, I will stop. Uh, I will stop moving my space on this screen. Uh, and two, unlimited. We blew through about the the normal fifty gigabytes. I usually have about ten or twenty gigabytes left at the end of the month. My family blew through the fifty gigabytes on my AT and T plan uh, in a couple of weeks. And that, of course, at that point, I'm throttled to 128K, which may be unlimited, but is completely delete expletive worthless. Uh, even loading a lot of basic web pages, active web pages, streaming video, none of it works at that point. It is pathetic. Um, so, you know, anybody who calls like 22 gigabytes and, uh, and, a, uh, and a 128 kilobit per second cap for the remainder of the month, uh, unlimited can kiss my ass. I just want to say that right now. Um, most people yeah. don't have to deal with this unless you're traveling and moving massive amounts of data. But it's interesting as 5G rolls out, a lot of the carriers are starting to, to add larger data plans or experiment with them um, because 5G offers the promise of maybe them having another revenue stream uh, doing higher amounts of bandwidth. You were, you were about to say something, Sebastian, and I would I Yeah, I, this is where something like what T-Mobile does, uh, I think it's with their T-Mobile One plans, but... It, you can opt into, I think it's an extra 5 or $6 a month. By, by default, if you have a T-Mobile One plan, which is $50 unlimited, everything for a month, they give you all the streaming services for free. But it's right. it's down, it, it's only 480p, which looks fine on a right. phone, but obviously if you're streaming on a larger device, you'd want something more. There's an upcharge of, like I said, like 5 or $6, I think, to go to HD. Right. And that gives you HD streaming unlimited, like Netflix, YouTube, uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu. So when you when you take the streaming video out of the equation, 50 gigabytes suddenly seems like a lot, unless you're downloading huge, like like Linux distributions or, or large uh, files. But when it I, seems like, like a lot, but I don't think people yeah. Oh. I was going to say, I don't think people realize, um, like this wasn't even, there was, we weren't even doing much in the way of video watching like three or four programs, but 
Um, that can easily be four or five gigabytes an hour if you're not careful. Uh, a lot of it was like yeah. my kids being connected and uh, Minecrafting and downloading some, uh, having access. There was sort of a constant trickle of data as they access certain websites to occupy or to to actually like read cartoons and stuff. is kind of amazing. I'm still analyzing where all the data went. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, at one point somebody noticed, I, I think it was like Facebook pages, like every time you loaded a Facebook page was like somewhere between two and six megabytes for a single page. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been interesting to look at that. Um, that Sprint MiFi 8000 hotspot you saw next to the iFixit toolkit, uh, it has been out for a while. And part of the reason we got this is for sixty bucks a month they offer a one hundred gigabit, one hundred gigabit, one hundred gigabyte data plan, which is fantastic uh, in terms of the amount of data for the money. Uh, it's a similar, uh, basically the same thing as the MiFi 8000 at Verizon started shipping a while back. Uh, when it worked, it was fantastic. But as it shipped, or as it came from the uh, came from the store, came from the vendor, came from Sprint, there was a firmware on there that was constantly rebooting on certain towers. So imagine if you're getting like six megabits per second, and you're really excited about that because I can actually connect and, and move the video I need to move. Notice my head is all excited. I'm in bobblehead mode. And then the router reboots. <clears throat> and then the router reboots every minute to three minutes uh, until you get pissed off, turn the turn the modem off, and, and just go someplace else. And that was really frustrating. And then I found out from rbmobileinternet.com, which is a fantastic website for the mobile or for the community that needs uh, mobile internet, that there was a patch for it. So I went to tech support. Tech support doesn't know much. And I get uh, elevated to level two tech support, uh, tech support, which never calls me back, uh, never emails, never calls me. Uh, but the update shows up on my modem. So I update it. Uh, it does not update completely. I end up having to drive to a place with internet, uh, like reset the modem. I get the, the thing to load. And then finally, I'm actually getting, uh, you know, wireless data so far with no reboots. Um, it's a $240 device uh, if you pay for it up front, uh, if you don't go for like a two-year plan. And it's $60 a month. That's for 100 uh, gigabytes a month, which is not bad. Um, the other device I've been experimenting with, uh, I just I, part of it what I was realizing is as frustrating as, say, Android firmware updates can be, where you're like, okay, the phone company or the, the telephone manufacturer has created a firmware update. I just, uh, just, just all I need is for my carrier to pass it through if they ever do. Um, it seems like in a lot of cases, hotspots are like these sort of distant cousin. And, uh, you know, this, this problem with the rebooting on certain towers has been known for a fairly long period of time. Uh, but it takes a while for, I guess in this case in Seago to actually finish the update to patch the problem. Um, it's interesting. I'll, I'll be curious to use this over the next few months to see what the performance is like, see whether or not I get anything more than I've, I've at least one location. I've got like 20 megabits per second down, but typically I've seen more to four to seven on the towers I've been on. Part of that is the region of the United States I'm in where it's a, uh, it's a essentially a sprint partner that's providing 4G LTE. Um, the other device I picked up is pretty crazy, Togo's Roadlink C2. Configuring this has been one of the most bizarre things I've ever done outside of trying to configure the, quote, free, unquote, software that came with uh, 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 analog-to-digital converter, uh, a Focusrite uh, device I got. I was like, I'm getting cool audio software. But to get the cool audio software, you had to load, to run with your hardware, you had to load a security application that managed all of the installation and essentially sandbox all of the apps because everybody in the music industry or the music application industry remembers the 90s and people stealing apps left and right and they still use really poorly you know poorly functioning outdated systems to try to manage and control apps so in the case of that focus right i never got any of the free software to actually run after about two days of trying to get this sort of security software that managed the apps to run i just finally went back to my usual open source applications and you know uh, made some obscene gestures in the directions of the audio industry uh, for that. Uh, Togo Roadlink C2, it's made by WineGuard, which is a company that makes a lot of uh, TV tuners and satellite uh, uh, antennas for uh, RVs and, uh, or the RV industry. And the C2 is essentially an AT&T modem and a router in a big white box that goes on the top of, in my case, the silver Twinkie or your RV or your car or whatever you want to strap it to. So uh, 
Togo is a subsidiary of a company called Thor, which is an RV manufacturer. And for me, this device is all about the legit $30 a month unlimited AT&T data plan. Legitimate un- unlimited data is kind of the unicorn of mobile internet. There was, for a short period of time, uh, six months, uh, eight months ago, uh, Verizon had an unlimited uh, postpaid plan or prepaid plan, I should say, uh, which I spent like six weeks trying to figure out how to buy and could never actually get connected in any way to actually buy the plan. But, you know, they released that plan. It was incredibly successful and they took it away. Um, in this case, uh, it's $30 a month and you have to prepay $360 to get a year of the unlimited AT&T data plan. Um, and what's been amazing about this and why it reminds Reminded me of the joy of configuring that audio software is you need to have like a Togo ID and you need the Togo app, you need the WineGuard app to install and configure the uh, the uh, the you know Roadlink C2. Then you need you can't do anything until you actually download it and it's like because you can't do it on the website you have to download and install Togo's app on your cell phone then you create your Togo ID you use your Togo ID to log into the WineGuard app and the WineGuard app pushes you to a special page uh, to purchase the AT&T uh, data plan which doesn't work directly through your phone or the application in my experience so then I took that information and logged into AT&T on a laptop on a separate connection because you need a separate connection to actually get all this stuff up and running um, so I'm curious to see this because the reports I've seen suggest that the AT&T modem inside uh, the Roadlink C2 is fantastic but the router is a complete piece of stuff uh, like 15 megabit per second max. So people are like, I can get 400 megabits per second download, but it's throttled to 15 megabits per second or less uh, by the router, which is more than enough for most of what I'm going to do, but I'm very curious to see what the real-world performance is. Uh, I've also been waiting for quite some time. Uh, AT&T was supposed to have my account configured in 30 minutes. Uh, it's a couple hours two and a half hours later at this point, uh, and I still don't seem to be able to connect to anything through that device. So more on this and uh, the wonderful world of mobile internet uh, next week. Uh, If this is too much information about using uh, massive amounts of data on the road, by all means, email twitch, T-W-I-C-H at twit.tv, and I'll stop. (laughs) But... uh, it's been interesting to watch because it's one of those cases where it's like a third-party company builds a thing and it kind of works. Or I should say sort of a non-networking or, or cellular modem company or a cell phone company. I'm kind of really, if this works, it's going to be amazing. If it doesn't work, I'm going to be really agitated. Um, but getting a lot of internet uh when you're on the road is an expensive proposition and in many cases a complicated one uh, that usually involves owning multiple devices for multiple carriers uh, if you want to have a consistent connection while you travel. So, oh my goodness, Pharonics. I love Pharonics. They're the Linux yes. people. <laughs> yep. they, they got crazy with the Intel Core i7 1065G7 Ice Lake. Uh, how did it fare under Linux benchmark testing? So they they picked up a Dell XPS. It's a seventy three ninety notebook, and they had they had previously gone through a Whiskey Lake. So it was an i seven eighty five sixty five U base XPS notebook and a i seven eighty five fifty U, which is Cabby Lake R. So these look identical, but three slightly different generations of Core i five and i seven processors for mobile and. Previously, we, like here at PC Perspective and other outlets, we've looked at this new 10th Gen Ice Lake. There's a few notebooks that have it, including XPS. I think Dell XPS was the first to get it, and they're a 13-inch 2-in-1. And it seemed primarily that it was a big jump as far as graphics. The Gen 11 graphics are a huge, huge improvement to the point where they were they were trading blows with some of the AMD APUs in notebooks, which... Previously, Intel graphics, integrated CPU graphics have been like a joke. And suddenly right. they're legitimate. You can actually game on them and not at you know 720p low settings. So looking through here, they're doing like any like so many. Pharonix is great because they do a huge suite of tests. And it's, it's all Linux-based. But if mm-hmm. you look at like anything from web browser to audio and video encoding, uh, just the thermals and power consumption everything, there was a far bigger improvement with this new 10th gen than I had any idea, like for for actual CPU performance. And one thing that we didn't see was Comet Lake, 
We don't know how those higher clocked 14 nanometer mobile parts are going to compare to this. Probably significantly faster just because they're running at higher clocks. But if you're living in that like thin and light space, notebooks, including the one right here in my hand, like these are running those Core i5. This one I think has that that Whiskey Lake processor in it from these charts. It's very, very common because it's a 25 watt TDP part. It has... It has plenty of power for productivity and the core, the the new core i7, the 10th gen with the G7 graphics, the, the G7 is the highest uh, like GPU skew of that, most execution units, highest graphics performance. But it, I'll just paraphrase, like actually the, the quote at the end of the article was, overall, the core i7 1065 G7 represents a significant step forward in CPU performance compared to earlier Intel laptop processors. And that isn't even talking about the graphics horsepower, which they get into, because it's a significant improvement with Gen 11 graphics, especially the the G7 variant that's in this. But just kind of surprised me that we're seeing such big improvements, uh, large measurable improvements that are a much bigger jump than that previous generation to generation gap we got from Cabby Lake R to Whiskey Lake. So mm-hmm. I, I will be excited when they're actually shipping in greater volume and it's in more devices because right now they're you, most of the laptops we're still seeing that eighth generation Whiskey Lake uh, CPU. So, you know, when hopefully by early next year sometime, you know, we've talked about the, the rumors and speculation about them with 10 nanometer on desktop. But let's face it, notebook is most, most of America, most of the world's primary computer is not a desktop anymore. So if you're not doing it on your phone, you probably use a laptop. <laughs> and for, for Intel to be offering a big performance in, improvement with, with the 10th generation, far beyond what I was expecting. Um, right. Jim, our managing editor, bought one of these 10th generation laptops, and that's when he did his initial product testing. But he was doing graphics testing versus a, a Ryzen APU-based uh, ThinkPad. So when mm-hmm. we actually get into it with CPU testing, I'll, I'll be very interested to see how all of these 10th generation processors fare because they do have they do have some significantly improved single threaded performance. So one of the other updates, uh, there's the RTX updates. The crew over at Hexus uh, took a look at uh, uh, Encore Ray Trace graphics engine. There was already said World of Tanks actually were showing off the Encore Ray Trace graphic engine. Um, Basically, and in, 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 Intel themselves had been promoting this because it's it's a new version of the the World of Tanks engine that Intel had mm-hmm. worked with uh, um, the developers to integrate real time ray tracing. And what was funny to me about the demo, which we were, if you're watching the video version, you saw at least a, a small version of that video that still exists, was the the difference was the softness of the shadows changing. And we've talked oh, about real-time ray tracing and not to be snarky, like I, I heard World of Tanks Encore, which I've been using as a graphics benchmark, it's a standalone application you download. Right. And they had not even integrated the the changes they made to the graphics engine into the standard World of Tanks game yet. Encore was like a, a look at a future engine for this game. And it makes a good standalone benchmark. It's DirectX 11. Right. And this was, I, I was kind of excited, like, oh, cool, another standalone ray trace benchmark we can look at for performance metrics. And uh, it's, it's I, I was struggling to see the difference. Like, yeah, it actually, it looks softer, but I don't know if softer is better because it was just the, the hard shadows were reduced <laughs> and it was apparently a little bit more intelligent with how the shadows were being. Like, I was... We, we've talked about this before where the biggest impact when we're talking about real-time ray tracing outside of a few scenarios. And I will say that demo right. that the cry engine people did, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was uh neon noir, I think uh, something like neon noir. And if you, if you aren't familiar with that demo that was shown off, I think at CES, it looked like blade runner. And if you imagine a blade runner like world where there's just pitch black shadows and alleys and there's rain that's constantly falling. So there's the sheen and some reflectivity from puddles. And then you have bright neon lights from signage and lights in buildings and people walking by. And it made an amazing demo. 
or DXR. And it was actually rendered on, I think it was an R9 290, not even a 290X. So just phenomenal looking demo that they ran. Got me excited for things like, uh, what is the new, I can't believe I'm forgetting this, 2077. Cyberpunk 2077 that's coming out. That's going to have ray tracing support. I think that will end up being another great demo for ray tracing for the difference that it'll make. And if you're watching the video, we're looking at that Neon Noir demo where, you know, it's passing by a pane of glass and it's raining and you can see the water dripping down the glass and the reflections of the neon signs in the glass. It's all pretty amazing. And to me, that would sell the experience. It would make me want to buy a card that was real-time ray tracing compatible. And by the way, both this Intel-infused Encore ray trace demo and Neon Noir, these are all examples of DirectX 12 ray tracing, not not, uh, platform-dependent. So it's it's API-level using existing shaders on your GPU. You don't have to buy new hardware. Like I said, the Neon Noir demo was actually rendered on a Radeon R9 290. So, mm. no, nothing even super high-end. It's just a matter of implementing it and having developers get on board with it. So, it, but, but the world of tanks demo, I'm like, really? It looks exactly the same. It actually sl- looks slightly worse <laughs> at first because I thought it wasn't as sharp. But, right. Where's my sharpness and my detail? Oh man! Maybe they uh, Microsoft that just yet. Microsoft's updated the support of CPU page for Windows 10 1909. If you have a 10th generation Intel processor, you will need to install at least Windows 10 1903 for Microsoft to officially support it. So same goes for the Ryzen 3000 series. Uh, the write-up on uh, PC Pro on this one uh, is worth heading over to PCPro.com. Scott Michaud wrote this up. Um, it's really simple. Um, yeah, you know. The hardware it's dev simple, center at Microsoft. But it, can, it can be very confusing. And they did yes. update the article. And, and when I first read this, I read this as you have to get a 10th generation CPU if you want to run 1903. I'm like, no, that's not right because I'm running 1903 on 8th gen. <laughs> but no, no, it's, it's for 1903. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a 10th gen processor, you need 1903. It's like what they did with Cabby Lake, where. Which version of it was it? I think it was just the Intel drivers. Like if you actually wanted to run Intel's platform with, especially Intel graphics, Intel graphics drivers, which initially did come out for Cabby Lake. I remember downloading them. They were pulled. You couldn't find them anywhere unless somebody was had cached them. And they said, no, you have to get uh, Windows 10 if you want to run Cabby Lake integrated graphics. And now it's the same thing where... To have full 10th generation support. So if you buy one of those new laptops, uh, you're going to end, end up installing 1903 anyway. And actually, to their credit, 1903 has been pretty good so far. I've been running 1903 on the primary test bed systems here. So no big problem there. Same with the Ryzen 3000. It's just nice that they clarified that. So if you're having problems getting drivers to install, if you're having issues with your system and you happen to own a Ryzen 3000 processor or one of those new 10th gen laptops, make sure it's running 1903. Please. Please, just so you don't suffer. (laughs) I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. Um, No, you're not kidding. I should say, yeah, it's uh, so much excitement, so much joy. Uh, I feel like the content wars are finally chilling out a little bit. Um, there's uh, 9 to 5 Mac has an article uh, talking about the Amazon Fire TV getting the Apple TV app, uh, most specifically the Fire TV Stick 4K, the HD models, and then more devices and models are going to be supported soon. Uh, Roku app that supported the Apple TV uh uh, that supported Apple TV launched last week. Quote, users can watch their, their purchased iTunes movies and TV shows, access Apple TV channel subscriptions, and watch Apple TV Plus content when the streaming service launches on November 1st. So this is, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, we, we don't have YouTube on, uh, you know, Amazon Fire devices last I checked, but we're getting closer. <laughs> uh, if Apple can cross the lines to put their content on Amazon... Uh, <laughs> I never thought I would see this day, honestly. Think about it. Just Wasn't it just a few months ago you could not buy an Apple product 
on Amazon unless it was from some dubious third-party seller. And now Apple just happily sells on Amazon again. And now Apple is giving their app to Amazon for Amazon devices. And right. you know, obviously, Apple is coming Well, Amazon Prime has TV been running service. on Apple for a while. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's this whole, yeah. This, you know, this, this battle yes. between providers, can't we all just get along? If, if someone no. owns a Fire Stick or an Apple TV or some other device, they should be able to run all of these apps. I, I You're was, naive fool. Yeah. It, 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 it's not just the providers. I mean, it's, it is the providers, really, like right. even cable providers. I have Spectrum, uh, formerly Charter. And I'm so sorry. For the longest time... They did not support the Apple TV at all, but they had an iOS app. So then I could I could use it on iOS or Android because I have their streaming TV service. But I had to get out the Roku. So I had to have two set-top boxes installed. We primarily use an <laughs> Apple TV. My wife likes the Apple TV. And, and so do I. And, and, and it runs most of the things that we needed to run except for our Spectrum streaming, which I had to have a Roku for. So I'm like swapping inputs on the receiver. And right. it's just it's been ridiculous just to run one app, which they... They finally have an iOS app, or sorry, a TV OS app. So it's now we can actually just use one device. But you know, the idea that you could, I could still be using a Roku and get the Apple TV app, is mind-boggling. Right. Crazy, 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 crazy. Uh, I also was completely blown away when Amazon Prime first showed up on the Apple TV. But you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um. Yeah, this is, is, you know, we've said it before, we'll say it again. This is a tremendous pain in the ass to the consumer, and it's nice to see people lightening up. I also feel like this is something that Apple did specifically because they've spent so much freaking money on Apple TV+. Plus. Like, you know, the, the, the budgets have, paid, have apparently gone through the roof on a lot of the, the shows yeah. they've been creating. Uh, and also because revenues are down and they need more platforms to generate the cash. Um, yeah. If you if you I'm look curious. at any recent report on market right. share, you're going to see even though Apple for a single handset is unparalleled as far as adoption of their operating system because I mean Apple right. iPhone iOS it's it's a huge uh, lead over the next handset and operating system combo. But if you look at handsets at large, devices at large, most mm-hmm. of them, the great majority of them, are running. Android, it's it's like looking at the Windows versus Macintosh space in the 1990s, where, well, it's not quite that bad. It's it's like 90-10, Android to iOS, somewhere in there, 80-20, 90-10. And if, if Apple wants, like you said, if Apple wants to sell as many subscriptions to this as possible, they look at the install base and say, well, you know, households that have an Apple TV have got to be a tiny fraction of the Roku and other devices at large because Roku has something for almost every price point. And the, the stick, it's one of those holiday items. You're going to see a Roku, like a fire stick, something like that is going to be selling for like $20, $30. Right. There have been extremely inexpensive streaming devices. Plus don't forget all the smart TVs that have streaming apps built into them. And then there are Roku TVs that are popular. I know people with those, I know a lot of people with Fire Sticks or Roku's, and not with Apple TV. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I know like two or three people who have an Apple TV. It seems like the great majority of people get something else, and I think a lot of that has to do with price. Apple TV is not inexpensive. It's a quality product. I have nothing really bad to say about the one that I have. I think mine is a fourth gen. But well, it's kind of the you're you're either in the Apple ecosystem or you're not. Like you right. Know. I like the Roku. I, I think Apple's interface is cleaner. The the TVOS is cleaner. Um, you know, for me, a huge part of the reason we stay with Apple TV is because we own so much content uh, that we purchased from iTunes. So uh, okay. that was a yeah. motivator for us to stay in there. And we also, we also started, you know, we cut the cable and started using uh, Apple TV literally on the first generation product about a billion years ago. So uh, there's been... Uh, there's been some uh, motivation there. I also know a, a, several people, a lot of people, many people with Apple TV devices. Well, I mean, you're out Twitch. in California. That's, you know. Oh, don't even world. start. <laughs> they, I'm in the Midwest, Patrick. We're, we're simple Michigan. people with Amazon Fire Sticks, okay? <laughs> you, it says it's the man who just thing. pointed out regional that his, he and his wife prefer their, their Apple TV. 
I, uh, I will let the audience draw their own conclusions. That picture you're looking at, that is off of twit.tv slash twitch. This Week in Computer Hardware is the name of the podcast. We call it Twitch a lot of the time. All the older episodes, information on how to subscribe to the audio, to the video, all sorts of links and info is available at twit.tv slash twitch. If you've never seen his smiling face and shocking red hair before, that, ladies and gentlemen, is Sebastian Peak, and you can find him at his day job at pcper.com where he is the benchmarking maven and editor-in-chief, keeping the content flowing. You can catch up with me at, uh, well, Twitter's a good place, twitter.com slash Patrick Norton, or here at Twitch, which is This Week in Computer Hardware, twitch.tv slash Twitch, or search for This Week in Computer Hardware on your favorite podcasting or podcatching. Pod- yeah, I think podcatching is a preferred yeah, podcatcher. Tool. Usually I say podcatcher, but apparently I'm feeling rebellious this week. Your favorite podcast listening application. Uh, you know what? I think at this point, podcast stop. app probably works, but... Okay. Whatever you use. I think I think technically it's still a podcatcher, though. So oh, just stick to the script, Patrick. The script Twitch at twit.tv is the place to email us. We want to hear your questions. we got one coming up next week about Flight Simulator 2020, which is Ooh. wild and crazy. Yes, 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 ladies and gentlemen, it's back. And we'll be back next week. Uh, (laughs) It's exciting. I'm also excited to see if I can get my Delete Expletive uh, AT&T Togo Roadlink C2 Weingard Thor RV Mushroom running and actually connecting at a higher speed to the Internet. I wait with bated breath. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. And I'm Sebastian Peake. We'll catch you next week on Twitch.